Coming up on today's show, we bring back Dr. Zach Benny to talk about the pandemic and the NBA. And later, we're going to talk to the guys running the Stakeum Twitter account. I know, it's weird, but bear with us. Welcome to the Back to Back Pod on the Athletic Podcast Network. This is Nerder She Wrote with your host, Dave Dufour, with Mo DeKeel and Seth Partnow. Are you ready to be entertained? Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Nerder She Wrote. I'm your host, Dave Dufour, joined as I am each and every week by my guy, Mo Dykeel. What's up, Mo? Oh, not a whole lot, Dave. How are you doing? I'm good. Did you get a run in this week? I did not yet. I've been quite lazy. A lot of walks, though. Yeah, but that mustache, though. It's 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 a lot of Glorious. weight to carry around. You'd be faster Glorious. if you shaved it. No, listen, I will be faster when I can get a haircut. I'm definitely carrying three pounds of hair. Just, <laughs> y- 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 oh, <laughs> I need a haircut. And uh, Seth Partnow is uh, in Milwaukee. Last we heard, it, it was like, uh, it sounded like a tornado in your house, Seth. Uh, the, 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 uh, the cyclone of my kids has uh, <laughs> moved to other locales for the moment. So yeah. we are, we are, we are uh, the the wind has the wind has subsided. We're we're all really excited to see the Lego creations, though. Uh, well, I'm excited to step on them. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, and uh, making his third appearance on the show, Doctor Zach Benny. Zach, welcome back. How, how are things going? I got a chance to see your beard on the video there. You've got the nice quarantine beard going. Yeah, I was going to say, Mo's complaining about how he's got a beard and hair. Hey, I got the same thing, and I went out for a run this morning, buddy, so I don't know what your excuse is. Wow. Oh, shots fired right off the bat. Wow, I love this doc. guy. I love this guy. <laughs> We're going to go. That's how we want to do this podcast today. Okay, game on, Doc. Okay, game on. Uh, all right, Zach. Uh, so... Um, we're now, I don't know how, what are we at? Two and a half months, uh, since, since everything kind of shut down two months, a little over. Yeah. About two months. Where are we at? I wish I had a good answer for you. Uh, I think that that's something that's driving a lot of public health people uh, a little bit nutty right now is I think we're in a period of a lot of uncertainty, uh, It's important to remember that we don't have one epidemic in the United States. We have a whole bunch of different epidemics in various areas. So, you know, you may look at the media tends to focus a lot on like New York and New Jersey, right? And those areas seem to have hit their peak and are coming down the other side. And that's really, really good. That's really encouraging. But there are other areas in the country that don't seem to be doing so well, have either kind of plateaued. Uh, or uh, do appear to be on the upswing. And some of that is due to increased testing, but I'm not at all convinced that that's that's all uh, of the increases that we're seeing, uh, particularly ones uh, more recently. Uh, So I think there's a lot of anxiety among a lot of folks as we see uh, some social distancing and stay-at-home regulations start to be uh, rescinded and loosened uh, in various areas of the country, and what's going to happen over the next three to four weeks? Uh, you know, maybe maybe we'll get lucky and people really uh, take it upon themselves to still distance a lot, and we do see uh, a continued uh, plateauing and then a downswing in cases. Maybe we'll kind of stay roughly where we're at, not get a lot better, not get a lot worse. I know I've seen some projections along those lines, and I, I don't necessarily disagree with them. Uh, it's also possible that we'll start to see upswings, uh, 
maybe nationally or maybe only in certain areas, certain states or certain cities. I know we're already starting to see sharp increases uh, in some particular areas with localized outbreaks. That's not surprising, uh, even under a best case scenario. I think that's kind of what people were expecting. But what happens to the national numbers and and how many places uh, see large spikes, I think that's really something that we're still all crossing our fingers and holding our breath to to see what happens. And it depends both on what our leaders do, but also what people do, because it's not just as easy as a governor saying the state is open. Like I live in Georgia, right? Our governor was the first one to do that. Most of the places of business around me that could be open, like restaurants and stuff like that, are still closed. And I applaud their decision for that. Uh, When I heard that restaurants were going to open on April 27th, I texted the owner of the bar I go to to play trivia at every week. I said, please, God, tell me you're not reopening. And he goes, no, I'm not an idiot. You know, I don't want to do that yet. So even business owners who really would like more income, uh, you know, some of them are definitely uncomfortable. So it's going to be really interesting uh, to see what happens uh, as we move forward. But I I don't know where we are. I think we're all kind of kind of waiting to see. We do know that we're not testing enough, right? Yes. Yes, absolutely. That is one thing that we still uh, are not doing. Uh, We're right now at around 300,000 tests a day, and that's a lot better than we've been in the past. We seem to be on this path where we're gradually increasing the number of tests, uh, not as fast as a lot of people would like to see it. And I know there's some confusion and frustration around why that's happening. Uh, Our goal is... um, Every expert I've seen agrees that we don't have the number of tests we need yet to safely reopen. There are quite a wide range of projections for how many tests we actually need uh, across the nation. The absolute lowest that I've seen is around 500,000 tests a day. So that would still put us about 200,000 a day shy. Uh, I think a more realistic estimate uh, and a more recent estimate that I've seen is maybe around 900,000 or a million. And then there are plans that are talking about, you know, three to five million tests every single day uh, in order to uh, really uh, quash and contain uh, the epidemic moving forward. So uh, however you slice it, we're, we're short of where we need to be. So it's kind of using testing as a jumping off point. I think that there's sort of, uh, it does seem that in the, and there's no kind of good way to segue from like the broader trends to, to, you know, return to play for sports, but you know that's that that that's kind of what we're we're talking about here. Um, it does seem that the the availability of testing and uh, contact tracing and and things of that nature are uh, a key part of any sort of return to play scenario. Um, how have people done so far with that? That have. Uh, continued or, or returned? What have you seen of the plans that are out there? And obviously, uh, we're recording on Wednesday, Tuesday night, um, some new information about uh, how the NBA might proceed forward uh, came out and kind of your thoughts on on uh, on the plan such as it has been uh, sort of set out. Yeah. So no question that probably the the two biggest things that we're relying on in order to be able to bring sports back safely is, you know, ideally we would do sort of what Taiwan and South Korea until recently uh, with their recent spike in cases have been able to do, which is not only um, if you want to think of us in the U.S. as having flattened the curve into a mesa, like a flat mountain. Uh, then South Korea and Taiwan flattened it into a crepe. Uh, the two situations aren't really comparable. So so that was our hope, was that we would be able to crush the number of cases really, really low. Uh, 
you know, maybe we can still do that, but we're definitely not there yet. And I don't know if we're on the path for that or not. Uh, I think that's really hard to, to predict. Um, I know there's a lot of concern that we're not. Uh, and the other thing is testing because being able to test, uh, athletes and coaches and league and team support staff, uh, is one of the most important things that we need in order to be able to bring, uh, any workplace back online safely, really. And that includes, uh, professional college, uh, sports, uh, professional and college sports. Um, so what have I seen of the plans that are out there so far? Um, you know, most of the plans and the responses that I've seen from the big four and major league soccer, um, you know, I've been generally pleased by the responses of those leagues. I've been saying that for two months now and nothing has really changed my mind. Uh, you know, sometimes you hear somebody say something through uh, a media member that maybe you're like, Oh, I really wish they hadn't said that. But when you look at the actual actions of the leagues, nobody's done anything that I've been like, wow, that's crazy. You're responsible. So I think that that's a really good sign. Um, obviously I have been quite vocal about not being happy with the UFC, uh, bringing their fights back to Jacksonville. Uh, they, uh, tried to start too early, uh, and their safety plan was a good start, but it definitely was not as airtight as you need to be in order to run something like that, uh, in the U S right now. And in an area with a lot of cases like the United States, any weakness is magnified. If you were to try to run their safety plan in somewhere like Taiwan, where there are very few cases, the weaknesses in there probably would have been papered over, or maybe even would have been justified, um, because there was just a low chance of a case actually popping up, but that's not the case here. Uh, and indeed we saw that one of their fighters and his two corner men, uh, showed up and tested positive. But the problem was, uh, that person, uh, Sousa, uh, I don't know how to pronounce his first name, Yacare. so I'm going to avoid it. Yakare. See, I would have butchered that. Yakare <laughs> Sousa knew he had been exposed to a family member, uh, who was probably COVID positive, traveled to Jacksonville. Thank God it was from Orlando, which is a two hour drive. So he and his corner men didn't get on a plane, uh, went to the UFC on Wednesday uh, told them, uh, that he had a family member who likely had a positive test and that's good. That's good. But then if it were me, I would have isolated him off site pending his test results. And they didn't do that. They said he isolated whenever possible in the host hotel. Uh, he at least came out of that isolation for a stare down and weigh in, uh, where he was wearing a mask, but was not always six feet away from people. And so now we're going to have to wait a little while to see if there are any, uh, infections that arise from those lapses. They didn't let him fight. Uh, which is good. But uh, for those two days, um, you don't know in, until the positive test came back on Friday, you don't know just how many people he contacted. So, you know, clearly uh, they brought it back too early. They got unlucky. They got a case and they didn't do as well with that case as they could have. They didn't do as badly as they could have, but it definitely was not enough in my mind. Well, Doc, let's look at it this way from the in terms of the NBA perspective, assume whatever the plan comes back and they, they get going. What would be the proper protocol if somebody tests positive on a team? Because obviously they're going to have had close contact with their teammates, with their coaches. Like, what would be your ideal scenario of like, okay, how do we do it? Because the idea that we're going to put these guys all together and nobody's going to, and we're not going to have a positive test seems like a fairy tale to me. You know, it's, it's, it's likely we're going to have at least a couple of them. 
Yeah. So it depends a little bit, first of all, on the path that the NBA elects to go down. And there are two main paths for a sports league returning, uh, in my eyes. One is this path of sequestering everybody in a central location up to and doing what you might call a biodome, which we've talked about on this program before, where you uh, make a lot of upfront investments to make almost certain that a case does not get into uh, your league. So that you you know you make everybody isolate for two weeks to make sure nobody is sick, and then you let them in only after a couple of negative tests. Um, that's one possibility. The other is uh, you simply test everybody involved in the league basically every day. And the theory there is, okay, with the amount of cases in the general U.S. population, yes, you're absolutely right. You're going to get a case. But the theory is that if you're testing every single person every single day, then you are able to catch someone almost as soon as they test positive and before they've had a chance to transmit uh, the disease to uh, a large number of other folks. And so you cut chains of transmission that way. So you accept that there are going to be cases, but as soon as somebody tests positive, you isolate that person and you would uh, presumably uh, let everybody else continue to play, maybe quarantine some of their closest contacts if they had a roommate or something like that. Obviously, that's somebody you'd want to quarantine. Uh, if they have somebody on the team that they uh, are particularly close with or ate a lot of meals with or something like that, maybe you would quarantine them as well. Uh, but the idea would probably be to wait and see if you get a second case or even a third case. But once you got to two or three, that would be an indication that you would really have to shut that team down, I think. Uh, pretty much immediately, and that would have massive scheduling disruptions uh, and all of that. But but the theory, again, would be that you are catching cases early enough that there's just not a lot of time for them to transmit uh, to other people. Now, that is relying on a few things that we don't quite know yet. And basically, that amounts to um, we don't know the exact timeline between when you get infected, when you become contagious, and when you test positive. If you test positive before you become contagious, this is a great plan. If you become contagious before you test positive, you know, if it's a couple days, uh, if you're contagious on day two and don't test positive till day four, which again, most experts I've talked to don't think is likely, but we don't know, then that's a really bad plan. And you've probably, you'll have explosive transmission within something as close knit uh, as a basketball team. So, um, so that's what it's relying upon. But if you're really testing everybody every day, I, I think it would be reasonable to just isolate a very limited number of people if there's one positive test. But if you start getting two or three, that's a, that's a bigger issue that you need to deal with. So if there's one positive test, you probably have to isolate that whole team, correct? No, I would okay. say that if there's one positive test, you isolate that player and maybe anybody that they've been in particularly close contact with. So that's why I say if they have a roommate, if they have a best bud on the team that they've gotcha. been sitting around playing video games with after, those are probably people you need to quarantine immediately. Um, but there are also creative solutions that you can uh, take up to limit spread within a team. So for example, if you created kind of sub networks within the team of guys who always practice together, so you split a roster into groups of five and only those groups of five practice together, then even if you had a case, uh, you know, maybe you would only isolate his sub network of the team. And if you split your stars, uh, up across these subgroups, maybe you, maybe you could only quarantine, you know, one part of the team that really has more exposure within their group than uh, 
than to other uh, networks within the team. You know, there are creative yeah. possibilities that you can look at to limit that. But but if you saw two or three positives on a team, that's the situation when I'd say shut it down. What about the efficacy of the testing itself? Um, you know, we've heard a lot about false negatives, especially the with the quick test, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is, is this a concern or would this be maybe baked in where you're getting multiple tests at a time? Uh, it's definitely a concern. Uh, the false negative problem is well known. Uh, some of that is sometimes due to poor testing procedures. So maybe it would be improved. Like most of the tests that most people are familiar with is the long Q-tip up the nose. And that's really hard for people to stand. I've had it done. Not that, but something similar for a flu test. It sucks. Okay. So sometimes you don't get a really good sample, uh, from back there. Uh, Recently, there's been a lot of excitement about the possibility of saliva tests. So you just spit in a cup. That's a lot easier to make sure that you get a good sample, I think. So uh, there's the possibility to improve that there. Uh, There is the risk of a false negative. Maybe you could run uh, multiple tests, multiple different uh, kinds of tests. Uh, That would obviously increase the number of tests that you need. So is that worth it? I don't know. That's getting a little outside my area of expertise, but... um, it's definitely a concern, but but not something that I think would make a daily testing plan just dead on arrival or anything like that. It seems like uh, one of the things that came out with the NBA last night is there's there's a notion that that a plan to kind of reopen that involves okay one positive test shut it all back down is not actually a plan to reopen. Is that is is that fair to say? You need to have. Uh, it has to be a plan that's robust enough that, like, uh, involves to some degree playing through a certain amount. Unless you're establishing a true strict biodome with almost a zero percent chance of an infection getting in, uh, yeah, you're going to have a case. That's just the reality of the situation and and the level of disease that we have uh, in this country right now. It it will happen, and I know the. Uh, the NBA or some of its intermediaries have uh, communicated that to their players. And I think that that's honestly, that's good that they're saying that and putting it out in the open, because unless you're going to do uh, a true biodome that would require players to all move to one area and maybe isolate from their families for uh, weeks or months. um, Yeah, you would, you would be looking at that probability. And that'll let me launch into, I'll, I'll get up on my soapbox here for just a minute. I've always said that you're not necessarily looking for a zero risk plan to bring sports back because nothing in life is zero risk, right? My wife and I still go to the grocery store. Usually we only send one of us, but that's taking a risk. We recognize that, but the benefits of going to that grocery store outweigh the risks. So you're always looking for a situation where you keep risk below an acceptable level as defined by public health authorities and infectious disease experts. And within that, below that acceptable level, you try to minimize the risks while maximizing the benefits. But we definitely do need to think about, you know, what level of risk are we willing to assume and do the benefits of whatever activity we're engaging in outweigh that? That is oftentimes a very personal and individual judgment. So I'm not going to sit here and say like one person is right and another is wrong. Uh, but I think that's definitely the way that we need to be thinking about anything that we do uh, to loosen any kind of, uh, of restrictions uh, in this country and, and anywhere really in the world. That actually, I'm glad you you 
you've got on that soapbox because that kind of leads me into uh, kind of the last thing I wanted to ask about, which is um, that there's there's a there's Obviously, a little bit of, of of quarantine fatigue going around, and uh, probably part of dealing with that is giving people something. You know, whether it's it's smaller group gatherings or the, the gradual openings up, or as something some form of mass entertainment like like sports. Um, so, I think it, I, don't, I don't think it's unreasonable to say that that there is some kind of larger benefit to that. Uh, the question is: Is balancing that benefit against the risk? Kind of, on, you know, on one hand, you have you know a, a Zoom concert, which is you know zero risk. On the other hand, you have an in-person concert, which is like, what are you thinking? Levels of risk. Where do some of these uh, plans for kind of return to play of a sports league? Where do they fall in, in that sort of uh, hierarchy? Of, of risk and and then using that risk against which to, to weigh the, uh, the 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 benefits if you will of 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 giving people this this kind of entertainment yeah so I agree that people are feeling quarantine fatigue and I think they're feeling a lack of leadership merited or not and a lot of people are frustrated that it doesn't seem to feel like there's a plan and so I think it is important to give people something, some ray of hope. And the more we're learning about this disease, uh, the more that I think we are equipped to issue those sorts of rays of hope. So, so for example, right, the safest I could be is staying completely at home. But I went out for a run this morning, as I was saying. That's a calculated risk. But from what we understand, uh, it's really close, sustained contact that's the main driver of transmission. So even though I go running without a mask simply because I sweat too much and the mask would become immediately unusable, basically, um, you know, I am very cognizant of where I am with other people. I will curve into the street. If there's uh, a mother walking uh, her baby in a stroller down the sidewalk, I will stay away. But just briefly passing by somebody, probably from what we know, is not a high-risk event. So again, we need to find the the balance uh, and the right way to reopen things and and give people what they're looking for. This is something that I encountered when talking a lot uh, this past weekend about the uh, there was a youth baseball tournament uh, from game time that was organized uh, in the suburbs outside of St. Louis. St. Louis is still uh, under a stay-at-home order. Uh, the suburbs are not in Missouri. So they got dozens of teams together at two different sites, uh, including some, uh, my understanding is from across the border in Illinois, which is also under a stay at home order. So you're bringing teams from a fairly broad geographic area and you're bringing a lot of them together for a tournament. Why? That's a lot of people with a lot of risk and not a ton of benefit over say getting two local teams together, the closer together, most of their players live, the better, uh, so that you don't risk uh, spreading the outbreak in a wide geographic way, uh, and have two teams go out on the field and play youth baseball. Like I think that's I think that one's debatable. I'm not here to say that's right or that's wrong, but when you could do that, and instead you bring dozens of teams together, including from areas that are trying to contain the virus with a stay-at-home order, that's just ridiculous to me. It's completely bass-ackwards. Um, there is 
there's a wonderful, a renowned HIV researcher from Harvard who wrote about this recently. But I think there are actually some some instructive lessons we can take from the HIV epidemic where, you know, if I just tell people don't have sex, right, I say abstinence only. I'm sorry, that's not a long-term solution. I know a lot of people may may wish it were, but human nature simply does not allow that. I cannot tell you don't have sex and expect you to go out for the next five years and not have sex, okay, outside of marriage. That's that's not going to happen. So, you know, we can we can have that message, but it has to also uh, be parceled with other options for, okay, if you're not going to do the perfect thing, here are ways that you can commit misdemeanors rather than felonies, right? Use a condom, uh, avoid a particularly risky sex act. In that same way with the pandemic, I think there's room for us to give guidance to people uh, for things that they can do that may add some risk, but hopefully don't cause uh, you know, the chance of a big explosive outbreak or something like that, right? So if we can tell people, you know, go to playgrounds or something like that and stay away from other people as much as you can, but you can go to a playground or you can, um, you know, maybe, uh, if we want to bring restaurants back, we can have them do outdoor dining. I know some areas, uh, are starting to uh, open up some streets downtown. I think Cincinnati may be one of these, uh, where, they're actually closing street space so that restaurants can serve entirely outside because the evidence that we have seems to suggest that it's harder to transmit when you're outside than when you're inside. So we can find these lower risk ways to get back some normality. Not all of it. We're not going to be normal for a really long time until there's a vaccine produced and mass administered, and that's going to take a while. But uh, there are definitely steps that we can do. In terms of where sports falls on that spectrum, I, I think the, the real big wedge here for me is fans. I think there's a really strong argument to be made for the benefits of sports back on TV, both economic and psychological. And I think that you can do that with the right plan with only a low to moderate amount of risk. When you start talking about bringing fans in, that only moves the benefit needle a little bit from my perspective, uh, but spikes the risk needle a lot. So that doesn't have as good a risk benefit uh, ratio to me. In terms of where sports falls on the spectrum of a, of other mass events like concerts and stuff like that, you know, I, I think my answer honestly is going to be really skewed because I love sports. You love sports, Seth, Mo loves sports, Dave loves sports, right? So we all derive a lot of benefit from sports. But some people don't like sports. They like concerts. Well, you know, I can't really think of a good way. Well, maybe you could have outdoor concerts, right, where everybody is – appropriately spaced and there's not a single entry and exit point and stuff like that. So there's no opportunity for people to congregate. Maybe you could do things like that, or you could do, you know, more televised concerts. Um, you know, I know some people would probably like uh, new episodes of some game shows back. For example, I would love uh, new episodes of Jeopardy, and maybe you could do Jeopardy in a relatively safe way without a studio audience. But how would you do, say, The Price is Right without a studio audience, right? I don't know. So it's it's all it's all about being able to come up with a plan that keeps the risk below of uh, the acceptable level. And, uh, and I would say that, you know, sports has a lot of benefit, but other people would disagree. So I don't know that I can sit here and say sports over concerts or concerts over sports or something like that. Well, the correct answer on a sports podcast is sports over 
concerts, just so you know. <laughs> um, well, I would agree, but I'm just one man. The I have another question for you. Just the, the idea of there are some people out there who are just saying, hey, just cancel the season and and get back to it around Christmas time. And, you know, you, you tell me if I'm wrong here, but the one thing I look at, it's like, man, we're not going to be that much safer in Christmas time. I mean, granted, we'll have more time. Hopefully we'll have better tests and, and all that stuff. But it's not like the risks are going to be that much lower around that time. You, you tell me, Doc, am I wrong on this or, or, or what? I don't think you're crazy to think that. But, you know, your mileage may vary. Other experts may disagree. So this is just my opinion. I don't see a whole lot of opportunity for things to improve from, say, this August through next January or something like that, because we're definitely going to need to be worried about a seasonal peak, assuming we keep it, you know, at least where it is over the summer. We're definitely going to be worried about a renewed resurgence uh, in the fall and winter that might start in October or something like that. Uh, you know, would that be over by December? Or would it extend into January or February? I don't know. It depends on an awful lot of things, including our response to that. Uh, hopefully, we'll be basically where we need to be by testing by August or so. I certainly hope so. I hope earlier than that. Um, but, you know, maybe it takes a little bit longer. Maybe in September or something, we see a miracle treatment, but I'm not banking on that. Uh, I don't think it's reasonable to expect a vaccine any earlier than, you know, the middle of next year. I know we've heard a little bit about, well, maybe January. And then suddenly uh, last week it was, well, maybe September. But the experts that I'm talking to really don't think that those timelines are very plausible, at least for mass uh, administration of a vaccine, which takes time even once you have one. Uh, so, you know, yeah, I... I don't know that we're going to be in a whole lot better situation over the course of the fall. Well, hopefully we are. I mean, I hope so too. I I hope we're, I hope we're in surprisingly good shape uh, by July or August. Uh, That would be my hope. Uh, I just don't think it's, it's weird to me to think that things are going to still look bad in July and then better than they look in July in like November, if that makes sense. Right. No, I, I get exactly what you're saying. Uh, well, informative as always, Dr. Benny, we really appreciate you coming on the show. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much for having me and, uh, you know, stay safe and well. We spent a lot of energy on Nerder She Wrote, uh, battling disinformation and misrepresentation of data as it applies to basketball. You know, Seth writes pieces constantly that it, it almost seems like he's taking Twitter arguments and just trying to smash them to bits. Most. Yeah. Uh, well, our guests have taken this approach to mainstream science in an extremely unlikely place. Uh, Nate Albach and Jesse Bender, uh, you guys are the creative forces behind the Stakem Twitter account. I, I've got, first of all, I grew up, I love Stakem's. They're delicious. I haven't had one in probably 20 years. But man, when I was a kid, I loved those things. My first question for you guys is why in the hell is it Stakem that is doing this? Like, why Stakem? I mean, this is Jesse. Hey, um, yeah. I think, you know, what it comes down to is, you know, we're a marketing and advertising firm. So our, you know, we're, we're always, 
given goals and, and um, directives to do different things. And, you know, our goal and directive with Stakem was to do exactly what you were just saying. You know, we were supposed to put Stakem back on the map. And um, with that being said, you know, I, like you, you know, 20 years ago, I get home from school and I would fry up some steak and put it in, put it in bread, throw some cheese on there. And that was my afternoon snack or, you know, after basketball or whatever. So, you know, we had to, we had to bring it to a new generation. You know, this is not a microwavable type of product. You know, how do we, how do we make it relevant today? And, um, you know, really getting into Twitter conversations, building a voice, um, was, was the foundation of that. And Nate, you're you're actually the creative director of the agency, and and you do most of the tweeting, correct? Yeah, yeah, more or less. So, what is like the? I don't know. I guess like, what is your motivation when you're when you're constructing these these tweets? Ah, uh, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, we talk about it a lot internally. I think it comes down to just how we can fit into cultural conversations. Uh, we joke about it a lot, and other people. I joke about it as well on Twitter, just the fact of how absurd it is that a frozen meat company is the one commentating on these types of topics. And I think that that sort of absurdity or irony gives us like a meta layer to play around with a lot of this stuff. And I think about it like, and if we, um, if we consider the fact that like a, a news pundit or a journalist or any type of public figure who has, you know, their biases and views presented to an audience, you know, when they make certain statements, it's obviously coming from a very specific place of, you know, wherever they fall on like the political spectrum or, or their ideology or whatever it might be. Whereas like when Stakem does it, it's pretty clear that the underlying motivation is just to sell more frozen meat. And for some odd reason, that's like comforting to people when they hear, like this type of commentary because it's like coming from an almost, even though it's not, we all know it's not neutral in the sense that there's no agenda, but it's neutral in the sense of like what people are used to seeing politically and culturally. So it kind of gives us this weird space to, to play around with what we get to say, you know? Right. Like you wouldn't think there was an inherent bias with a, you know, frozen meat product as far <laughs> as politi- politically. Right. Right. Yeah. So, uh, and guys, thanks for thanks for coming on. I've I, I it was sometime probably in late March where I, I kind of first became uh, late March, early April when I first started noticing uh, what what you're doing with the account. And the thing that struck me is, um, you know, you you talk a lot about things like metacognition and and decisional biases and stuff like that. And and a lot of that is 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 some some pretty decently high level stuff. And I'm just I'm. I'm, I was wondering, and I was asking Jesse about this earlier. Kind of, what is the is is the background that that leads to to sort of that that playing into uh, kind of the the both the creative brief of of the this campaign, but also just you know people at the agency having the background and that stuff to to be able to present it in such a an intelligent and digestible way. Uh, no pun intended. <laughs> Uh, this is Nathan speaking. I mean, I, I think it, for me personally, at least, and for I know I can speak for Jesse and for our other coworkers that you know we we bat these ideas around. A lot of it just comes from you know being uh, invested into the the culture as a whole, just spending a lot of time in various communities online, you know, absorbing news and tech information and like just general, I guess what you could consider like liberal arts. Uh, subjects, you know, around philosophy, sociology, 
um, ec- economics, et cetera. And, uh, that, I mean, that's personally, that's my background. I'm not an expert in anything. And I don't think, you know, anybody within our agency would claim expertise in any of these scientific areas per se, but I think it's that just broad, um, you know, kind of autodidact approach to knowledge of just trying to absorb everything you can absorb, but also still remembering to be a, a person and be relatable and trying not to, you know, preach from a pulpit or like an ivory tower, you know, a lot of what we do, even though, like you, you mentioned it, you know, it might be perceived as, as deeper or high level. Like to me, a lot of this is just, you know, pretty basic stuff. Once you get it, like it, it doesn't, it wouldn't take, you know, like years and years of college to get the the stuff that we're saying through the account. It's more like we're, we just have a, an interest in those topics and we try to share them in a really easy digestible way that pretty much anybody could understand so it's like yeah part of it's you know figuring out like what what are some of these maybe uh deeper topics that that are important to touch on but how can we get them to the masses in a way that's just really easy to understand you you had a tweet uh, a few weeks ago and i'm gonna read it um if you really want to curb misinformation and reach people with the best available data don't look down your nose at them It's one thing to criticize sources of misinformation. It's another to attack or patronize victims of it. The messenger is often as important as the message. And I think that now, again, this is, I'm going to talk basketball analytics community. There is a, a a subset of the basketball analytics community that definitely does this. The people that don't get it. Uh, And the scientific community in general, as we've seen during the COVID-19 experience has been, been hit or miss on that. I mean, it's like 50-50 where it's, they've been awful and some people have been great. What was the feedback that you received on this type of messaging? Because you're, you're hitting people who are experts in the field as well, not just regular people. Right. I mean, there was definitely mixed messaging. I would say for nearly everything we've posted the past month or so, it's been overwhelmingly positive as a whole. Um, just again, because of the messenger being staked and it makes it a lot more uh, palatable for people to even, even if it, it might be a hit at them, it's easier to kind of take it, you know, versus like it was coming from political opposition or something like that. Uh, but yeah, no, it, it definitely, it applies to everybody in the situation and it's tough. I mean, basketball fans know it just as well as, uh, or I shouldn't say basketball fans, but you know, people that have a, a high level of expertise and knowledge in basketball have a, a similar perspective as, you know, someone who has a high level of knowledge in any science field, you know, when, when you know a lot about a topic, it becomes like second nature to look down your nose at people who don't know a lot about a topic. And it's just like an innate bias that everybody deals with in whatever areas that they're more informed in. And it becomes really difficult to communicate to people who maybe don't have that like baseline of understanding that you do in a way that's, you know, relatable human and not uh, self-righteous in any way. So yeah, no, it does. It definitely applies to people in all categories and especially during this whole, you know, era of misinformation and the kind of like polarization between a lot of the expert scientific communities and medical communities and uh, the average people that are out there who are just kind of confused by the mixed messaging. It's, it gets really, really tricky to figure out how to navigate that. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a weird space. I mean, thinking about how to think is actually pretty hard. And I think that, that again, you've, you've, you've tweeted about this in terms of the, uh, you collectively, the, the, uh, the, 
the, the frozen meat has uh, has has tweeted about um, you know the, the the difficulties of of kind of of working on metacognition and stuff like that. I'm uh, you know just to to follow up on my previous question. I'm I'm very interested in what's on your bookshelf. I mean, just hearing you talk about it, like um, I, Dave is. I've I've talked Dave and and, and our other co-hosts Mo. Uh, Mo's uh, ear off about a book that came out last summer called Range, <laughs> uh, and and it's a lot of what you're talking about is is mm-hmm. I don't want to say straight from that, but uh, but it, it it you know being grounded in a number of different things and being able to put them together intelligently is is I think you're being you know perhaps falsely modest, not falsely modest, but overly modest. Overly modest in saying that it's not difficult when it's it you know the reason why it, it stands out is it is uh, it is unusual. So I guess that that's a long winded way of of you know what if I looked on your bookshelf like what would I see in this area? No, I, I totally get what you mean, and it, I'm not trying to to pose it as not you know I, I guess at the level of what we're trying to talk about here. It's more so that just the concepts themselves in theory should be you know if they're communicated properly, it should be pretty easy to grasp for most people. It's just the fact that, you know, most people maybe don't have access to that information readily, you know, on a daily basis, or they don't know where to find it. So it's, um, that's why it kind of gives a, it comes across in that more, uh, kind of posing as an expert way versus, you know, just kind of me relaying the information or us trying to pose as a, a communicator of that information. But no, I mean, I, I, I'm like, I mentioned personally, I'm an autodidact. I I'm into stuff across the political spectrum, the cultural spectrum, um, regarding like this specific type of work, I would say the, the best book that I have on my bookshelf would be the righteous mind by Jonathan Haidt, a social psychologist who has done a lot of work, um, in the area of just like, so the social, social psychology of differences between, um, like, ideology specifically like left-right political ideology and uh that book and his work in general has just been a a large influence on me and how i view you know just trying to understand the the quote-unquote the other better you know people that are on the other side of the political spectrum of wherever somebody might be and i spent a lot of time i mean i have my own political biases and all that so i'm kind of all over the place, but I do spend a lot of time uh, invested in trying to figure out, you know, like the best ways to communicate with people across the aisle and understanding the psychology of people helps with that. Understanding um, the sociology behind where people's backgrounds are helps with that. So definitely, um, I would say the righteous mind would be like the biggest one that stands out. Um, but a lot of the others are just more political, cultural, and in like a broad sense. So, Jesse, how did you sell this to? to stake them. <laughs> I mean, this is like, I, I just, I'm sitting here thinking, I'm like, I mean, it could be considered risky uh, to a certain degree. Um, it's, it's very risky. Uh, yeah. And so I'm really curious how this conversation went. Yeah. I think, I think it really started out. Actually the client said to us, Hey, you know, and he's been on Twitter for years uh, and he's like, we should really be on Twitter. And, you know, at first I think, you know, Nathan, myself, the rest of the group were kind of like, well, that's, that's just littered with landmines. I mean, like this is, this is where you want to start as far as, you know, um, uh, social media interaction. Uh, but as time went by, you know, we started out by, a, I make the joke, we kind of started out by in the morning, Nathan and I would sit there at my computer and, um, he would be like, okay, I think we should do this, this, and this tweet. And we would send it over and two of them would get approved and one wouldn't, you know, it was, it was a whole kind of 
mess, right? So we didn't, we didn't totally get it at the beginning. We've progressed to the point where, you know, we aren't, we aren't, you know, we're not looking, we're not creating things to go viral. We're not trying to, um, to, we're just trying to be part of the conversation. And that's kind of where the client, the client, um, has, has let go in a lot of senses, you know, we, we would get, you know, 15 days down the road after we were sending over those initial tweets and he's like, just go, like, you guys got the idea. Like, um, you know, he gets that Twitter is a conversation. It's not, you know, you leave the conversation, you're not part of it. So, um, it just became a lot more conversational and the voice developed, you know, that, that voice, um, and that foundation for that voice and tone, uh, have been absolutely critical and, and going back to the beginning of this whole COVID-19, the coronavirus, uh, you know, at the beginning of March, I remember, you know, sitting there talking to Nathan, um, and we're, we're saying we have to, there's, there's really no strategy here. We have to listen. Like this is all unknown. Like (laughs) where do we go with this? Um, and ultimately I think that's what, you know, I think, you know, Nathan could probably comment on this, but I think that that's what made it more of uh, even more of a community than it was before, because it wasn't like looking down your nose at somebody. It was kind of like, well, hold hold on a second. You know, this is how I understand it. It became more conversational. It could be um, a a good opportunity for people to participate um, and, and, and agree and disagree. To let you guys get out of here soon. I I had to promise Jesse that since we're a, a basketball podcast and, and you're a Philadelphia guy that, uh, that if you had anything about the, uh, the 76ers, you felt like you need to, uh, you know, going from, going from listening as you just were talking about to, uh, to speaking, what, uh, what, what is your hottest Sixers take that you feel like you just need to just get out there to get off your chest and, 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 and be done with it. I think the biggest thing for me with the Sixers right now, is leadership, um, both on the court and on the sideline. Jimmy Butler has always been one of my favorite players. I love the way that he kind of shuts down and, and just invests himself completely in a city and in cl- completely in an organization. He obviously did that whenever he went to Miami. Uh, but you know, when he left Philadelphia, I was like, what is he doing? And then, you know, you know, whenever you think about it from the player's perspective, I was like, he knows way more than we do. He knows way more than we do. And that's what's kind of led me to the point where I'm kind of like, you know, coach has got to, we got to, we got to do something there. Um, and I, obviously I think, you know, there's, there's this ongoing question, can Embiid and Simmons play together? I'm not sure. Um, <clears throat> but Embiid certainly needs to, or, uh, Simmons certainly needs to get a jump shot. That's not a hot take, but I think the the biggest thing for me is that, you know, there's no leadership there, um, from top to bottom. And that's, that's hard for me to say, I like all those guys, um, but it's not there. It's just, it's not there. And some, some severe changes need to be made. They've had too much talent on the floor to, to, to lose to Toronto. You know, that's my opinion. Oh, I don't know. Toronto is pretty good. Uh, Nathan, <laughs> Jesse, thank you guys for coming on. It, it was, it's very interesting what you guys are doing. And, uh, I look forward to, uh, paying attention to it as we go forward. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Thanks for the time. That's going to do it for this week's show. We'll be back next week with more Nerd She Wrote.